Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world around us, the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as my pretty bride likes me to say, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner Ravinder awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a great chat room. Sarev, tell us all about it. The chat room is a wonderful chat room. We have a great group of people and some excellent conversations. So if you're not there, you are definitely missing out. Come join us at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Now, you know, the show airs several times after a Wednesday live broadcast and on several different networks. Your chat room is still available for those people, though, that would tune in at a different time or, for that matter, even get it out of an archive. And, and you do things like show movies and whatnot in the chat room. Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. During the halftime break, we always show a movie in there. I, You know, we try to find something that, you know, that is about the guests that we have on, on the show. So you get a whole different perspective there. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and, uh, you know, oftentimes we will post additional l- links in there. Um, you know, if there's additional questions or, you know, just more information. So, yeah, you, you know, if you can't join us live, it's still worth checking out for, you know, the other information. And I always check it out later myself for, for no other reason. I mean, I like to see the chat and see who's participating. But you very often have the guests themselves in the chat room answering questions that maybe aren't being uh, asked on the air or or adding additional detail to what their responses have been on the air. And I find that really, you know, that's a really neat aspect of your chat. That is. It is it is really cool. And, you know, oftentimes the guests will post a link to more information on their page, you know, depending on what, what the questions are that are being asked in the chat room. So, yeah, you do get extra perks from coming to the chat room. So that's provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right, in the spotlight this week, we turn our attention to the rational human, a piece uh, from my most recent newsletter. And if you don't already subscribe to that, please do. Uh, you can do that when you're, you're right there at Provocative Enlightenment. Arthur Young said, God sleeps in the minerals, awakens in plants, walks in animals, and thinks in man. This past week, I asked a couple of questions on my Facebook page. What if everything you believe is wrong? Can you even admit to that possibility? What if we discover tomorrow that foundational truths we hold to be dear were in fact false? What would we do? Will we deny the marshal of evidence before us? Would we attack the messenger delivering the news? Would we challenge with arguments of credibility, authenticity, verifiability, come from emotion and so forth? Well, the likelihood is very high that we would do all of the above and more. Why? What does it take to change a fundamental and foundational belief? Let's say, for example, that you have come to reason that everything happens for some good reason, that it's all part of a big plan. 
You are right where you're supposed to be and perfectly on path because everything is as it's supposed to be. Now, further, let's assume that you have used this belief rather axiomatically to justify, rationalize, and otherwise integrate all actions and activities arising in your personal life story. So you say to yourself something um, like, well, you know, if I had it to do over, I would do X instead. But, and then you hesitate and add, well, maybe I wouldn't have met my mate and and married her if, if I'd done that. So I guess I did what I needed to do after all. In other words, where we are, we rationalize to be where we're supposed to be, irrespective of where we happen to be. Now, think on this example for just a moment. Do you really believe that everything is planned and perfectly executed? Do you really believe that the atrocities perpetrated every day by someone somewhere in this world are acts of some divine plan? Do you really believe there are no such things as accidents? The parent who backs over their child in the driveway and cripples them for life planned all of this somewhere on the other side or something? Was there a grand plan in the sky that led to the downing of the Malaysian Airlines MH17 over Ukrainian airspace? And would you like to share that plan with their loved ones, those that survived? What is rational? The dictionary will no doubt provide something like this as a definition. Based on facts or reason and not on emotions or feelings. Having the ability to reason or think about things clearly. I know it feels good to fit all of the accidents, crime, disasters, calamities, catastrophes, cataclysms, misfortunes, mishaps, afflictions, adversities, strategies, and so forth into a comfortable paradigm that persuades our psychology that all is well after all. But is this rational? Let me share with you a thought I often have with myself. If everything is perfect just as it is today, then I have nothing to aspire to. No room for growth, no space to become more than what I have already manifest, and so forth. If instead... Everything is perfectly in place for me to improve in every way I can to enable the weak and the poor to protect and protest the wrong, to contribute to the welfare and freedom of all, then I am ready for the day. Which way of thinking is the most prevalent today and which is the most empowering? What happens when we examine everything we believe may just surprise us if we can do so honestly and free of bias. That is the real tough one. I have used but one example here of the many sorts of beliefs that we can all hold as foundational to our thoughts and behavior. The simple fact is, our enculturation has created a sort of template for our thinking. Recognizing this fact is but the first step we take, to free ourselves from patterns that deny the one thing that truly makes humans remarkable among all life forms, and that is our ability to think. Choosing to be rational is not everyone's favorite gig. I have often heard remarks such as, ignore the brain and listen to your heart. I suppose we all must decide when to listen to what, 
But I like the words of Daniel Kahneman. We think, each of us, that we're much more rational than we are. And we think that we make our decisions because we have good reasons to make them. Even when it's the other way around, we believe in the reasons because we've already made the decision. Your thoughts on ra- on that, Rav? You know, that just holds true in lots of different areas. We believe in something because, or we decide something because we already believe it. We watch the TV that supports our views. We mix with people who uh, who support our views. And the important thing is to stop and think why you think what it is that you think. Thinking about thinking. It, it can sound circular. It can sound like it's just word games, but I think it's a really vital part of becoming an enlightened human being. I mean, you can only become enlightened when you know who you are, and you have to think about what it is you're thinking and why you're thinking it, and don't allow yourself to get trapped in that little box. I think it was great. You know, we had a conversation before we went on the air today about uh, our favorite atheist, Richard Dawkins, who made some comments online that basically said and and i'm not going to use his comments because they got really controversial so i'll kind of modify that but he basically said if a is bad and x is worse that does not mean i've approved of a yeah you know now some of the things that he then went on to say were emotional in their nature so he went on then to make statements like um you know, uh, date rape is uh, bad, but uh, violent uh, rape at the point of knife is worse. worse. So, you know, he was showing, you know, what at law is, is a scale of circumstances that determine intent and, de- and de- degree and, uh, and, of course, sentencing. But again, his point was that to say one is bad is not to excuse it. It's to say it's bad, but to say also something's worse. And yet a lot of people responding purely out of emotion became very upset by the notion that X is bad and Y is worse. He made the point that people don't think, you know, because he said very clearly, because A is bad and B is worse, that does not make a acceptable but people didn't stop and look at that they were trying to say are you going to quantify the different degrees of rape and how painful things are um it it was it was crazy that that was just like the prime example of people not thinking um you know for that one individual who um for the one individual it's going to be bad regardless of what it is It's, it's like you know we have all the fires here um, you know, and they declared a state of emergency so they can have FEMA funds. And for that community, it is really bad. But if you're not in that community, if you live at the other side of the country and your house burns down, I'm sorry, that is still traumatic to you. It doesn't make one worse or one better. But, you know, in the one instance, you're not going to get FEMA help. That's all there is to it. But in this big instance, there is lots of FEMA help available. That's the way it goes, and it isn't putting anything down. It's just reality. It's just common well, sense. I think the point is there's a time uh, for us to listen to the heart, if you will, our intuition, our instinct, and there's a time to be listening to 
um, our rational side. And, uh, and when we lose sight of our rational side, whatever we're listening to, we're not likely to be in, uh, in, in the condition that we want to be. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of recognizing the very important role you play in making this show successful. Um, last week we hosted Nick Redfern, and we had a lively conversation about all things conspiracy, ranging from shadow governments and cover-ups to assassinations and UFOs. J.R. commented, I love how Nick presents all of the out-there information in such a way that it makes sense and you can see the patterns. CB remarked, I will have to pick up the book. I appreciate where there are traceable facts the author uses compared to pure conjecture or special information. Richard wrote, Nick is an unusually credible character. Mark wrote, I found the subject matter on today's show with Nick Redfern to be captivating. For years, if not centuries, people have looked upwards into the heavens and wondered whether there is intelligent life or whether we are alone in the universe. Nick Redfern has no doubt been pursuing this topic for years and has carefully collected much evidence and advanced many theories. I don't discount the notion of UFOs or extraterrestrials. In fact, I think they probably do exist in one form or another. However, while I'm concerned about the evidence of UFOs, I'm equally concerned about how some people have gone about discussing and investigating this topic, advancing much in the way of speculation, fallacious reasoning, and wishful thinking. While there may be some solid evidence and theories, there is also a lot of garbage. Moreover, while I don't discount the existence of a shadow government, the Illuminati, or other groups of such nature, I think that perhaps we have sometimes let our imaginations get the best of us. As we have tended to do so with UFOs and ETs, we have a tendency to make such groups out to be larger than life, granting them without question omnipotent and omniscient powers. Then we fear them like the mythical gods of old we created. I don't mean to sound cynical, but rather to suggest that we carefully consider how we think and discuss such matters. Kyla wrote, love your radio show to Dr. Taylor. Helen wrote, I saw you on Chris and Susan. Wow, so inspiring, such value to share, so humble. I look forward to meeting you one day, Eldon, and in the meantime, I get that said, I'm going to pursue your website and get at least one of your books. Many thanks. Well, thank you, Helen. Lois wrote, your stuff simply rocks, Eldon Taylor. I love everything you do. Well, thank you. I mean, what, what can you say about that? Um, all right. I appreciate that very much, Lois. Nicholas wrote, at this stage of my development, I feel a sense of responsibility to let you know what has been accomplished using your recordings. I have come to realize that without feedback, it must be difficult to gauge how your students are doing. In the past 13 months, I have lost 53 pounds using the Intertalk Weight Loss Now program. Well, we're thrilled for your success, Nicholas, and thank you for your feedback. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. I truly appreciate your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show, The Pattern, The Matrix Called Miron. Think back to the show that we recently had where we entertained hosted the acquired mathematics savant Jason Padgett. For him, the world of math delivered itself through pictures. 
As he experienced mathematical synesthesia, pi revealed itself everywhere. Jason informed us that pi was the root language of math and that all math was geometry. Further, this expression of mathematics, that is, geometry, could be found in literally all things in the world. So does that mean that there is one abiding matrix or template through which the language of math geometry expresses itself? I mean, is there a sort of cookie-cutter template that our universe is organized around or through or with? If there is, is it within us as well as outside of us? Indeed, is there a pattern that we can become aware of and use to guide our cognitive decisions, our social development, and more. Enter today's guests. Lynn Claire Dennis states, and I quote, My life's work is about living, is discovering the relationship of every part of the whole internally and externally, personally and interpersonally. It began with something nothing in my life prepared me for, a near-death experience. This led to a quest to remember to rediscover the resonant structure of light that mediated the link between life and death. Once this remembrance was fulfilled, the task became understand all the pieces identified as inherent in a unified whole. This understanding catalyzed an awareness of the need to articulate the ineffable and to take the first steps in making invisible visible. My certainty was and remains that this awareness is essential knowledge necessary to demystify the mysteries, to heal ourselves, to restore dynamic balance to our relationships, and most importantly, to understand the interconnection between human behavior and Gaia. Close quote. Now also joining us today is a prominent scholar, Professor Lewis Hirsch Kaufman is an American mathematician, topologist, and professor of mathematics in the Department of Mathematics, Statistics, and Computer Science at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He is known for the introduction and development of the bracket polynomial and the Kaufman polynomial. Professor Kaufman was valedictorian of his graduating class at Norwood Norfolk Central High School in 1962. He received his B.S. in 66 and his Ph.D. in mathematics from Princeton University in 72. Kaufman has worked on many places as a visiting professor and researcher. He is the founding editor and one of the managing editors of the Journal of Knot Theory and its Ramifications and editor of the World Scientific Book Series on Knots and Everything. He writes a column entitled Virtual Logic for the Journal Cybernetics and Human Knowing. From 2005 to 2008, he was president of the American Society for Cybernetics. So on that, let's get both of them in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Lynn Claire Dennis and Professor Lewis H. Kaufman. Hello, I know you're in Denmark. You're on the same line. Do you hear me? I can, I can hear you. Can you hear me? I hear you. Well, welcome to the show. And well, thank uh, Professor you. Kaufman, he's there as well? No, he's in New York. Do we have him on the line? Well, yes, no. I'm online. Can you hear me? Oh, oh hi, good. Lou. All right, so we have you both. I don't see you here, yeah. so my note indicated you were in the same place, but that's good. Now we've got you both here. All right, let's right. begin with you, Lynn Claire. 
Tell us about your youth. Were you popular in school, involved in sports or music, and so forth? And what did you aspire to be when you grew up? Uh, what I aspired to <laughs> Oh, that's great, because in 1997, huh? when my first book came out, someone someone said to me, okay, Lynn Claire, what are you going to be when you grow up? <laughs> and I said, five. And he said, no, 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 the world's expecting a grown-up. What are you going to be? And I said, five. And he said, no, no, really, get serious, Lynn Claire. What are you going to be? And so I rolled back to my old, my early ambition, which was, you'll love this, politics. And my goal was always to be an ambassador. So I was, I was pretty much the average kid on the street. Um, I was the girl next door. You were the girl next door. Okay, well, part of this yep. frames a bit, uh, you know, the psychology that you approached your NDE with. So let me ask you this. Oh, well, no, I you raised that... in a religious family? Oh, yes. Um, more than that. More than that. Uh, my father went through a religious conversion when I was only five years old and became a minister. So I, I grew up the preacher's kid. I grew up, you know, uh, going to church at least three times a week. Uh, went to Bible college, seminary to please my dad. Actually became a missionary with a collegiate organization. So when I say that nothing in my life prepared me for my death or dying, it's certainly no exaggeration whatsoever. So your religious belief, you're, you're telling me, did not allow for there to be an NDE, or it did allow that you might have some revelation through whatever mechanism, and it would no. rise? <laughs> no, it didn't allow for any of the above. Um, it was, you know, what you got when you died was your body, your body was toast, you got six feet of dirt, I mean, and... Uh, if you'd lived a good life, you got the pearly gates, and if you believed one way, um, you got to go to heaven. So there was absolutely uh, no support for the paranormal, although we would later learn in retrospect that that was something that my father did have in spades and wanted to roto-rooter out of me. So, no, there was there was nothing that led me to... Um, accept or believe that uh, there was such a thing as a near-death experience. I'd never heard of it until I experienced it, and even then, this is 27 years ago, so it was something quite new. And the religious leaders that I met with, no one could explain, and I went all the way. I was taken to some pretty high, people high up in in religious circles, and nobody gave me... um, a rational explanation for what I had experienced. Okay, I, I want to get into that and get into that in detail in a minute, but let's get the professor in here for a minute. <laughs> uh, professor Kaufman, you heard the setup piece, I assume. Um, is it possible? I mean, did you, um, before meeting Lynn Clare, have the idea that there was such a thing as a mathematic, uh, a uh, pattern that for all intent and purposes was the pattern through which all that we know, uh, all that exists, uh, is created? Well, of course, uh, we search for fundamental patterns uh, in mathematics and physics, and we find them. Um, uh, I don't have an absolutist opinion uh, or position on this sort of thing. One looks for fundamentals. 
Um, and there are certain questions that one asks, which are, I think, very closely related to the kind of questions that Lynn Clare raises, the question of the nature of form and the nature of pattern. Everything you see has some pattern in it, but, um, but also many patterns are independent of the substrate on which they live. Think of a knot, a knotted rope. It doesn't matter what the rope is made of. The knot has its own being. Um, I'm going to ask you to hold it on that one, Dr. Professor Kaufman, because we have a hard break here, and I don't want to cut you off. So let's get to the break, and then when we come back, please flesh that out. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment. Our guest today, Lynn Claire Dennis and Professor Lewis Kaufman, and we're discussing the Mirian Matrix. You can learn more about them and their work by visiting Miron. Miron.org, that's M-E-R-E-O-N.org, or EssenceIllumin.com. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. The praise for Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions, continues to mount. John Edwards said this about choices. Read this book. We are living at a time when people are searching for answers to fundamental questions in their lives. This book can be, if applied, a roadmap to personal enlightenment and empowerment. More important, it helps you see that you can manifest change. Joan Borisenko had this to say. Choices and Illusions is a smart, practical book by a grand master of the mind. If you want to get out of the box of your own thinking and touch a greater reality, Eldon Taylor can show you how. Lindsay Wagner had this to say. Enjoy the journey. I did. Get your copy today online or at fine bookstores everywhere. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
high above the chimney top, that's where you find me, oh, somewhere over the rainbow, bluebirds fly. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Lynn Claire Dennis and Professor Lewis Kaufman about the pattern, the one real matrix. We ask our guests for up to three songs, their favorites. There can be quite a bit of self-disclosure found in the music that we all choose. The fact is, in a real sense, the music that we choose is important to us, reveals information about ourselves. So, Lynn Claire. You've provided us three songs today, and we just shared the first one. Somewhere Over the Rainbow by Israel I.Z. Fortunately, he has shortened that last name to I.Z. Why is this song important to you, Lynn Claire, and how does it tell us about who you are? Well, when I remembered the pattern, I was living on the big island of Hawaii. And mm-hmm. you'll have to forgive a little bit of tears. So, And I actually met Israel. And I became the Hanai daughter, the adopted Hawaiian daughter of Uncle George Naope, the master Kumahula, who brought, who was the master of the dance. And the fact that um, I was living on the Big Island when I remembered the pattern, which it is a rainbow. It's uh, in the chat room. We were talking earlier. Ravinder was talking about something and nothing, and and I was making a joke that Lou and I like to spell nothing, K-N-O-T-H-I-N-G, and that the pattern is not a thing. It's actually a rainbow, but it's still true, and it's still knowledge, and it it has profound meaning, and the fact that it is a rainbow reveals so much about what is true and what is an illusion? <laughs> so therefore, there's sort of a paradox, but that piece of music is profoundly meaningful to me. Thank you. I love this Thank story. Thank you for playing I love it. That story. Uh, there's a piece on YouTube for everybody out there listening uh, where this is performed, and, and uh, it's a very moving piece because uh, at the end of the piece, there's a ceremony for Israel. Um, incredible piece. I encourage you all to take a look at it. All right, Professor Kaufman, before we went to break, you were, I, I cut you off in the middle of knots, and I know that that discussion is not going to be a, a really short one because it, it's an idea that it, it's going to take some of your expertise to flesh out so that we all understand what you mean uh, when you talk about knots. So please pick it up, sir. All right. Um, I'd like you to imagine taking a piece of rope and tying a knot in it. Um, And there you have the knot. And what I mean by that is that the knot is sitting in the center of the rope. The ends are far, far away from the knot. And the knot won't go away when you push it back and forth. So you can imagine tying a simple overhand knot in the rope. And there it is. You can move it back and forth. Um, you can stretch it out, but it won't go away. Um, and you could even imagine moving the knot along the rope until the rope changes from being made out of uh, cotton to being made out of rayon to being made out of something else. Um, And you realize, as you think about that, that the knot has nothing whatsoever to do with the composition of the rope except that the composition of the rope supports it. The knot is an independent being living on the rope. 
And you get a glimpse by looking at that of the fact that the knot really exists independent of any ropes whatsoever. But then it's a bit mysterious because you've never seen one except to make it out of rope or to perhaps use a drawing of it. But when you make a drawing of it, then you're coming closer to just the pattern of it itself. Okay, so I want to be clear on this before we go further. So uh, what we're really talking about is maybe something like a platonic form. I mean, we we uh, have the particular, the knot that's on the rope, but in understanding, you're saying that, well, the knot exists even without a rope or a string or anything else that we tie it on, and we can represent that in a drawing. How does that um, suggest to us anything about the real world? Well, well, first of all, it suggests to us that it's not just the knots that are apparently um, separated in that way. A knot is, uh, is a thing in the real world whose form and whose content can be understood, the relationship between them. But that everything that you ever have looked at in the world is a similar um, amalgam of form and content, just like the knot. It's just that the mixture and the subtlety of it can be much different. Okay. All right. Now, let's then do this. Let's back up a little bit. I want to know how the two of you met and (laughs) see if we can approach this differently. But, Lynn Claire, let's begin by having you flesh out your NDEs. Now, I understand you had three of them, technically. Is that correct? That's correct. Please um, the first one, share them yes, with us. Sure. The first one was on the 15th of January in 1987 when I was participating in an international high-altitude hot air balloon race over the Austrian Alps. And uh, the pilot took, took us to over 21,000 feet with no oxygen. Not a good thing. And I remember hearing a conversation happening at about 12,000 feet. And what was strange about it is I remember thinking, oh, that's strange, because then the next thing I turned around, I was putting my foot down on Mount Rainier in Washington State. And I remember having the thought before I did that, thinking, oh, I'm not my body, (laughs) because I was observing my body. So I went through a fairly classic NDE, although many things were rearranged. In my new book, A Footprint in Eternity, which tells this story but puts it in the context of light of today, it just just came out a week ago, actually. What What's really clear is that m- most people, actually, a good friend of mine, Foster Gamble, I'm sure you know Foster, did a movie called Thrive. And when Foster and I talked, it actually got represented that I was going through this vortex. Well, that's not my experience. That isn't what happened. I literally just put my foot down and was on that mountain. And my grandmother came to to meet me. And frankly, um, if my theology had held, um, Jesus and a host of angels would have been there to greet me. And not one of them showed up. And so I experienced... um, my life, you know, the kind of seeing myself at different stages of my life, and I had what most people refer to as the life review, where people, um, quite astonishingly, I mean, it's really, it's actually still quite hard to talk about it because it's still so real, um, what happened, where they would come out onto this stage, they 
came through my, from my peripheral vision, uh, from my right, moving out to the center of what looked like an amphitheater, where they communicated with me. No, no need for words. This seems like such a foreign language to me, and it's part of why I'm I'm very intent on looking at how we talk about words. It's like I'll give you an example of what I think about. People talk about empowerment or enlightenment, and I say that that we tend to think that comes from outside and i and i like to look at it as enlightenment and empowerment and that's what happened when that language formed on the stage when they were communicating heart to heart mind to mind with me but the last person to walk out onto the stage and i thought of course that i would be following them out the doorway to the left on the other side of my vision but then someone stepped out onto this into my purview, into my, to this amphitheater is what it, it felt like to me. And it was as if they pulled a veil. I mean, if you can imagine getting, you know, I get in the shower every morning and pull the shower curtain around me, and it's right. almost as if they walked out pulling the, this curtain. And when they got directly in front of me, I could not see them. It was a man's voice who spoke. And what this individual said to me is, Linclair, you will be a catalyst for change, for love. You will bring forth, hold, and honor remembrance. You will bring to conscious awareness the realms, realities, and remnants in order that the spirit may remember the dance. And then that person turned and had the audacity to walk back out the same way he walked in. And then, and then the stage dissolved and my father was there and I had this amazing encounter with my dad. And I tell all of this in the book. There's so many stories that were not in my first book that came out in 97 that now that we have, frankly, now that we have the science book out, I can tell some of the things that I didn't dare tell. But it was then standing, I I thought I was going to the top of Mount Rainier, Eldon. And I know you're in Washington State. You're on my old stomping grounds out there. I went to high school in Walla Walla. (laughs) Oh, where really? we used to say we used to say committing suicide would be redundant. <laughs> <laughs> so it was um, walking. I thought I was going to the top of Mount Rainier, and it was something. My grandmother lived in a little tiny town called Eatonville at the base of that mountain. So mm-hmm. this was like I thought it was my mountain, and I was so thrilled to be there. But I, I'd always wanted to climb it, but I was afraid that I would die trying. Because as you know, people die on the mountain regularly. So literally, I'd never seen, until I came to Europe, I'd never seen an escalator without stairs, just like a moving rampway. And that's how I described what happened in my book. And as I stepped on to this, like an escalator without stairs, I thought I was going to the top of Mount Rainier. And... I remember halfway up thinking, oh, someone's called for a wardrobe change because I was where I had been wearing my gown from the Kaiser Ball at the Hofburg Palace on New Year's Eve, you know, a few weeks before. All of a sudden, my gown had changed into this amazing translucent filigree fabric that looked like it was constructed of spider webs that had been sprinkled with stardust. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen and all of a sudden I realized it was me it was it I was looking I was looking at me at what I really was and I came to the end of this what I called a tunnel um and 
I always said I left my right footprint embedded in eternity. And what I saw was, and this is just, it's my best memory, the strand of the tapestry weaving all creation. I said, it's music. And it was like calling my name as it pulled me up. And it was, music is the only word with capital letters in my book, with all capital letters. That was true in 97, and it's true today, because that's, we're looking at resonance, we're looking at pure harmony. And I said, it's weaving the strand of the tapestry, it's, it's weaving sound into light, it's what matter is, it's how matter moves, and because it's love, it's all that matters. And I remember thinking that I was going home. And, you know, we have a friend here visiting us today from South Africa, and she was staying in town and was planning in downtown Copenhagen, was planning to come out here on Friday. And she said, I listened to my heart, and I knew I just had to come home. I couldn't wait until Friday. That's exactly the feeling that I had. I thought I was home. I'd been called to that place. But then, all of a sudden, the music screeched, and I know that the your listeners have all made the mistake when we used to have, you know, the needles on record players where you oh, yeah. drag it across, where you, you know, you scrape across a record and it screeches. Right. Well, what happened was the music screeched, and all of a sudden there was a cacophony, and someone began to pull me backwards um, through the tunnel, and I remember twisting and fighting, but I remember knowing I, that I had to remember. And Eldon, I can still feel it in my body as I twist, and I turned around to look over my right shoulder because I knew that I had to remember the details of what I'd seen. And, of course, my husband had found me dead in the balloon, um, and it's, it's sort of a long story, and he was doing CPR to get me back, and that was... That was what pulled me back into my body, and actually, you you probably know that I suffered a fairly severe hypoxic oxygen, lack of oxygen episode, and the doctor said I'd never walk or talk normally again, and everybody agrees. <laughs> I don't talk normally. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it took me four years to remember, four very long years, and it was, um, it was not easy. And I had to, you know, learn to read again, and the doctor said I'd never do that. They said I couldn't get on a stepladder above sea level without oxygen. And um, it's interesting because all of this was happening in Chicago, right in Lou Kaufman's backyard, and we didn't meet until years later. Okay, so let's so, let's go to that now. All right, yeah. so you, you had your NDE, and you have seen this... Uh, Single thread, uh, the single—is uh, that how you describe it? You just describe it as a thread. I called it a strand, the strand, strand of the tapestry. Okay. You've seen the single strand of the tapestry, and uh, and it, from it all things have created. You you've come to that understanding. Don't let me put words in your mouth if I say something isn't right. So now, what are you going to do with it? I assume. You decide, I, I need somebody, some heavyweight that understands this to give me a hand. I mean, what happened? Well, it took, me four, it took me four years to even remember what it was. I mean, it was, uh, it was a long process of remembering, and I kept paper and pencil and colored pencils with me everywhere I went. See, because that's I, an important I, question, too, because, you know, is it possible that you remembered? Uh, was the memory constructive in its No, nature? heaven knows I'm not smart. Heaven knows. Lou will agree with this. I'm not smart enough to make it up. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to buy that one, but okay. I just, but all right. Where, yeah, do we go, yeah. where do we go next? No, 
it's it's no it's it's definitely you know boy if we were smart enough to make it up i you know i've had a lovely email from uh jason paget what a what a delightful um being he is and so I believe that, you know, people say to me, Lynn Claire, do you think your NDE was a spiritual or a neurological or a physical experience? And my answer is yes. How can we compartmentalize and, mm-hmm. and kind of put all of our intelligences into a single silo? And so I think that definitely what we know, if you look at the Marion Matrix, our Elsevier book, what we're discovering about the brain and the relationship and the patterning to the brain, the patterning of the human heart, we find common, we, we, we find it, we find these symmetries in well, its you an know, exact match. Lynn Claire, so, but it took me, <laughs> go ahead, sorry, Elvin. I was going to say, some 25 years ago, a friend of mine, Gary Leo Pedroso, brought a matrix to a creativity meeting and explained as a general system theorist how everything in the world was manifest from that matrix. It's remarkably similar, but it's, it is also dissimilar. He called it the as-is-us matrix. But so my, my question is, you have this, and, and, and now it's called the Miron matrix. Marion. Say it again. Marion. Marion. All right. Marion. There you go. It, you know. There you, you got it. Right. Good. Marion well, matrix. Well, so here's, you call it yes, the Marion matrix, but you you've seen it. But how, how did you get to prof, uh, to uh, to the professor to Professor Kaufman and <laughs> and get this into? I mean, I'm I've got the book, the Marion matrix, and it's an incredible That's- book, an incredible. You know, it is not a read. I can remember reading Buckminster Fuller's Synergetics. <laughs> you and tried to read no Bucky. There's no such thing as reading that book. I mean, you read the book and you put it down and you read the book again. I mean, and that's what this yeah. book is. So how did you get to Professor Kaufman? That's what I want okay, to Okay, well, first of all, let me just say that it's something, It's I don't think it's a cosmic coincidence that it was on Valentine's Day, 1991, that I finally remembered the pattern valentine's day and i reclaimed it in a dream i was able to see it find it and draw it in a dream and it was shortly thereafter it was actually within six hours i was with the visionary artist world-known jim channon who was the first person to help me he 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 belly laughed when he saw me draw it for the first time you know (laughs) because it was it's two spirals that full, it's a spiral. If you take a one and a half helix, it folds back on itself and it creates this beautiful knot. Well, people began to say, oh my God, this is a universal symbol. It's a pattern for love. It's, I began to, to do research and I'd find that I couldn't find a single symbol in any religious, cultural, mathematical tradition that didn't embody that wasn't a perspective of this. And so, it was in 1994 that the Dalai Lama, the Dalai, I was living in a Buddhist monastery. I decided that the best thing for me to do was to go be quiet because people had all these kind of ideas. And, and I'm, it's like, I just, the, I'm sorry, but the new age kind of track was just not something I could run on. Yeah, I needed logic. I for that. I'd, I'd, I had, come through enough religion and I saw that the worst thing I could do with this you know is, is turn it into into a religion it's, it's about connection 
It's about our interconnection. So I, I literally had a three-dimensional model of it, and people would go, oh, this is special. And I'd, I'd throw it across the room and, and say a word I'm not supposed to say on the radio, and I won't. But just say, get over it. It's not a thing. You can't turn it into something. We have to understand what this is. It's a metaphor for a life path. It's, it has something to do with time. It has something to do with how we live our lives and that rainbow path that Israel sings about, we have to get over that rainbow. (laughs) We have to get beyond hope. So in 1990, after two years living at Nechang Dorje Dryanling Monastery on the Big Island of Hawaii, I was quite shocked when Nechang Kuntan, the Dalai Lama's spiritual advisor, spent five days talking with me (laughs) and said, it's time for you to take this to the world. And I said, excuse me? (laughs) And he said, yes, take this to the... He said, you must write your story, never deny your story, because that's the spiritual truth, but you must take it to the world of science. And so that's what I did. And um, actually, someone assisted me early on in that phase of after moving from Hawaii to San Francisco, and four letters were sent out to supercomputers. And all of them responded. I sent a picture of the knot, which you can see on the cover of the early book, The Pattern. And Dan Sandine, um, actually it was Tom DeFonte from the Electronic Visualization Lab at the University of Illinois, Chicago, who saw that and went, hmm, that's a knot. And it's a polarized knot. I don't know what kind of a knot it is, but I know someone who is. And he sent the email to Lou Kaufman. And Lou wrote me back. <laughs> cool story. All right. You know, we've got a break 30 seconds away. I want to get Professor Kaufman back in here, but I guess we're going to have to do it after the break. Uh, I have three of your books right here on my desk. The Pattern, marvelous book, Discovering Your Universe, spelled Y-O-U-N-I-V-E-R-S-E, also a great book. And uh, The Marion, did I say it right this time? Matrix. The Marion Matrix. All right, so I said it right. Unity now, you say there's one Unity brand new one. What is the brand new one? Yes, the brand new one. Oh, I think you will really like this. It got a, it's someone I don't yet know Quickly. wrote a wonderful review. It's called A Footprint in Eternity. It's available on Amazon and ebook retailers everywhere. All right, Footprint in Eternity. And when we come back, we'll talk about all of them more. Uh, again, if you would like to know more about Lynn Claire Dennis and Professor Lewis Kaufman, visit their websites or check out the links on ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. All right, we have a feature film uh, on the Marion Matrix Prime Frequency for you during the break. So if you're not in the chat room, you want to get there now, just go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. So she took her love for to gaze 
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Lynn Claire Dennis and Professor Lewis Kaufman about the Marion Matrix. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies, and from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And I love your comments and feedback, and Facebook is a great place for that. All right, now we just played your second musical choice, Lynn Claire. Fields of Gold by Eva Cassidy. So what's up with this one? Why is this music oh, What's so up with that one? Well, the beautiful thing, of, well, Eva is just, she was a master at harmony, that's for sure. And she was a very gifted musician who suffered terrible, terrible stage fright, never wanted the limelight. And that particular song, Fields of Gold, well, Jason Paget came back with knowledge about pi and an understanding about pi. The Marian Matrix is all about phi. It's it's the gold. It's pure gold. Every point, every plane, every three dimensional form, whether it's based on on the golden ratio, turns gold inside of the Marian Matrix, the context and the core. And this is something we know thanks to the remarkable work. Uh, 15 years, a labor of love by our our Marion's hero, our hero, losing mind, Bob Gray, who has just been such an amazing uh, person. And, you know, we know our DNA, the helix of our DNA, that the bond, the connections between these spirals are all golden ratio. And if any of your listeners have looked at what the golden ratio is, you only have to look at your own hand to see it very clearly, and it's how we're proportioned. And so that's why that song is so meaningful to me, because the pattern, even though it looks so simple, and it is so simple, there's no, you had mentioned a cookie cutter earlier, and I went, ah, no, because how can, the amazing thing about this pattern is that it generates absolute complexity, and yet the pattern itself is so utterly simple. And that's what I love about even her music and and that particular song, Fields of so, Gold. So we have the phi ratio, yes, the we do. Everywhere. and we have the pi of pageant. Uh, you know, Professor Kaufman, a friend of mine, Dr. Joan Borisenko, reviewed Lynn Clare's book, The Pattern, and stated, and I quote, The pattern is a universal representation of the energy of creation. Contained within it are the symbols of all the world's spiritual traditions, calling for oneness of heart and mind as we manifest a new world. The vibration of the pattern is pure love, and its reemergence in this era will be a powerful catalyst to individual and planetary healing. Close quote. My question, sir. You're intimately involved in advancing the idea of the pattern, or what today is the Marian Matrix, is Joan Borisenko correct? Is she correct? Yeah, Dr. Kaufman, is she fairly representing the pattern? Is it what she says it is? Uh, she is speaking metaphorically about being and existence and the pattern of existence and the dynamics of existence. And in that sense, she's perfectly correct. So, as a metaphor, 
no thing that I can point to that is the pattern that I could say she's correct about. Okay, all right. I, I, I understand that. My my question was, and actually arises out of uh, a comment Lynn Clare made uh, before we went to break, uh, which was really a, you know an apology to New Age and. And that question was, are we overreaching when we start creating metaphors out of mathematics and uh, making these kinds of claims? Well, no, we're not overreaching, you see, because the magic is in the ordinary. The magic is in the immediate moment in which your consciousness exists and grasps who you are. It's in the thought of yourself. It's right there, right now, in your own perception, in your own being. In the fact that what you think are ideas are actually the spiritual base of who you are. All right. The abstract ideas in mathematics are alive. Absolutely. I have to chime in and say... I think a metaphor is a powerful way to understand, but I think what we're looking at is not a thing, but is consciousness a thing? And I think that's where where I think so many new individuals who are in the new age are there because there's been nowhere else for them to go. And for me, what I think we're setting, what we have here as an opportunity is to understand the field of consciousness, that field of gold that Eva spoke about, where, where within our unity we have absolute diversity. And, you know, what works for me, guess what? It might not work for you. But, I mean, if, if I drink a glass of water and you drink a glass, you drink a beer, a cold beer, we're both taking in liquid, and it's going to go, it goes in the same way, and it's going to go out the same way. So we have a unique way to understand how, how we're all different, and yet we all have this profound sameness. And if we can honor the diversity that arises out of this unity and understand that diversity is the product of unity, we have the ability to change our metaphor and that is by understanding the greater meta, and that is mathematics. That is unfreezing the music, to unfreezing the mathematics rather to understand the music and to 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 be the harmony, to be the unity, and to celebrate what is, what truly is. All right. Well, let's pick it back up where we were before the break. You were about to tell us how. Hopefully, you were about to tell us how you met Professor Kaufman. And we were to the point where you had sent this drawing out, and he responded. Let's you know, bring us up to date. Absolutely. I was in San Francisco at the time, and I was given Lou's email. Actually, Lou wrote me an email. Dan, or excuse me, I keep, I keep wanting to refer to our friend Dan Sandine at EVL, at the Electronic Visualization Lab, when it was actually Tom. But um, Lou sent me an email, and I wrote it back. And... Uh, Lou, you can correct me, but I, I seem to recall you thought I was a topologist out in California, and you thought it was interesting, and and he sent me an email, and, and I'm quite Well, I didn't assume you were an academic, Claire. Yeah. <laughs> so, but what was funny was I thought, oh, my goodness, how do I deal with this? How do I tell him where this came from? And so I just said, Lou, I know where we're going with this. Do you? 
and I still have his email. He wrote back, Dear Lynn Claire, we're going to the core of creation. <laughs> and um, because that's what knots are really all about. It's about connection. And so I think, what was it, Lou? Maybe six months later, we actually met in person in Chicago. Surely. Oh, cool. All right, Professor, please explain exactly what the Marian Matrix is then and what it seeks to explain. All right, who's that question for? Is that for Lynn Claire first or for me? No, that's for you. That's Professor. for you, Lou. Yeah. What is the Marian Matrix? Yeah. Well, there, there are a number of levels of this question. One is the Marian Matrix is that um, is that form uh, and discussion that we've been evolving since the 1990s, uh, and um, and it has something to do with what Lynn Claire saw. Um, and it has something to do with, it has much to do with the theme of how form and substance are interrelated in the world and, and out of the world. Okay, please elaborate. Uh, I mean, for most people, a piece of geometry, the knots, say that uh, you walked us through earlier on a rope, um, how does that, I mean, are you saying that electrons uh, build up atoms in this fashion? I mean, tie that into the real world so that anyone out there understands the incredible impact or importance of, of this matrix. Well, but I don't know how to uh, model electrons with the geometry of the pattern that we see. Uh, uh, that we've been examining. It, it has indirect relationships, which are very amazing, uh, and we're continuing to examine that. But uh, as for making quantum theory or electrons, we don't know how to do that. Okay. I think what's important is... is uh, so when you ask to tie it... Uh, let, me, let me continue for a okay, moment. Okay, go. Uh, sure. When you ask to tie it into, uh, into the real world... Um, and then you ask uh, to, for us to model electrons, you're actually asking us to tie it into the real world of the theoretical science. And uh, that's fine. It's a great question. Uh, but, but the first place, as far as the real world is concerned, that it ties into is, um, is, forming, a, is forming a model for human relationships and forming a model for how to think about form and pattern. All right, so let's let's pick it up from there for a second. It forms a model about human relationships, and I assume that is based on both the interdependent and independent nature of what is the outgrowth of the model. Flesh that out for us. Tell us what you mean by it forms a model for social relationships. Do you want me to take that on, Lou? No, I, I'll let no you I'm take still that asking on. the professor. You're still asking Lou. Good. Go for it. Or you're still asking me. Yes, I um, am, sir. I mean, you, you, you gave us the example, so I'd love to have you, you know, unpack what you were thinking. Well, let's go back to the knot. Okay. Um, we've seen the knot. Uh, I'll just give you an example, um, starting with the knot. We've seen the, that the knot can be thought of as um, as a pattern 
which gets its life from being on the rope. Um, and it doesn't have any human, it doesn't have any earthly life other than that. It has mathematical life, but it has no earthly life other than that it's tied on the rope. But for a mathematician, the knot exists whether it's on the rope or not. So the mathematician is in some kind of a peculiar intermediate position, as though guiding it, uh, guiding the spirit of the knot, if you like. But, okay. uh, but suppose that I said to you, um, could you tie a knot on this rope without letting go of the ends? And I handed you a, a rope. Interesting. And you would try. I know it's hard to do in the imagination. It would be better if we were together and I handed you the rope. But, uh, but there you are, trying to tie a knot on the rope. And, um, and you would find that you couldn't do it. It just wouldn't happen, not without letting go of the ends. You wouldn't be able to do it. Um, right. But then I intermediate, and I say, well, I'm going to ask you to stop at a certain point. And then you could hand the ends of the rope to me. Okay. And we'll find that together we can make the knot. All right. So are, we, are you suggesting that... Um, this matrix implies that, um, well, I, I, I guess I, I'm stuck here for words, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I'm just going to jump to the book and some of the content that I took out of it. Uh, essentially, uh, you say very early in the Marian matrix that uh, the Marian Principle shows, and I'm quoting now, that energy, materials, and resources of all kinds must be distributed equally. If any part of a system suffers, the entire system is at risk. Is Am I, am I inferring correctly from your not analogy your meaning, sir? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. What do you want to add to that, Lynn Claire? Well, you know what? In talking about how this applies to human relationships, it, we're going right back to where Lou started with form and pattern. And, you know, in architecture, there's a law. And most people know that, that function informs form. Okay? Well, I'm going to suggest exactly the opposite, that form when we're looking at the Marian matrix, informs function. And so we're looking, the simplicity, the Marian matrix, we have two geospheres, think buckyballs, okay, two different yeah. types of spheres. Think of one as a beach ball and the other as a golf ball, a big beach ball and a little tiny golf ball, and they're embedded within the other. Well, as these two things, it's, the pattern evolves as a language between these two spheres. Now, what happens between those spheres? The knot is the pattern of connection. The pattern literally is a knot of connection between those two spheres. But what those spheres define, what that complex geometry defines is something very simple. And it defines eight stages. Two are on the outside and six are on the inside. And relationship and how this matters and why it should matter in our life is very simple. Most of you will know what a torus is, toroidal dynamics. Well, this pattern sits on the torus and defines the torus. We can, you, saw, you saw sound generating the 
the Marion Matrix, this complexity on that small video during the last break. Well, these, these eight steps that go through, if you look at the ancient wisdom traditions, you mentioned earlier, Eldon, the platonic solids, talking about mm-hmm. forms. Mm-hmm. Well, the ancient wisdoms, they knew what we call the platonic solids. Well, science has never been able to unite those five fundamental forms, which is why we still don't have a cure for the virus. Now, of course, you can unite them. You can make a model and throw them all into a paper bag and say, there they are, they're united, they're in a paper bag. But the Marian Matrix is saying something very different. It's saying there's a logic to love. There is a logic to how you meaningfully and sequentially connect these. You mentioned Bucky Fuller. Well, Buckminster Fuller's jitterbug is this knot, but it's not one knot, it's five. And what we know now about the core, which we theorized in the, in the Elsevier book, we know that it's defining six, six jitterbugs. So looking at the forms, we say, okay, you have the system. Where are these forms happening? And we call it input, throughput, and output. You know, that's what, that's what your life is about. You take a breath, you inhale, and most people think about you exhale. Well, I'm sorry, they forgot a point, and it's called the turning point between the inhale and the exhale. Mm-hmm. And every time, do you know that every time you've had an aha, that cosmic aha when you get goosebumps and you have this, oh, where the, you have a thought. It's, the, it's something divine arose from within you. You've just left the theta brainwave state, which is what you were seeing in that video, by the way. So these eight forms, we start with the simplest, what is that called? It's a tetrahedron, okay? It's the only thing that can go from the outside into this particular matrix without breaking it. Well, when it comes to physics, it's just kind of curious that all spin one-half particles, photon, phonon, are all tetrahedral in nature. So you have the tetrahedron. So we call those possibilities. Now, once they go in the door of the matrix, guess what they do? They turn into cubes, (laughs) and Mm -hmm. they take on a cubic form, and the next step is the icosahedron. The next step after that is the octahedron. The next step after that is the dodecahedron. But there's not just one of them. There's multiples of them. And then something magic happens inside that context. You get the Kepler solids the rhombic dodecahedron and the rhombic tricontahedron. And guess what? Nobody has to know any of these big words to understand that possibilities are simple things. One is your physical reality. The icosahedron is the structure of water. We all know that your emotions, how many of us drowned in our emotions? You know, how many of us think so such big ideas that we never bring them down to earth for earthly good? How many, the, the, the universe, what Plato Socrates came back from drinking the hemlock and said, hey, I'm not dead yet. I saw it. The universe is like a child's soccer ball. Well, guess what it was? It was a dodecahedron. The next step is we get into complexity. It's time and timing. How often do we miss time and timing? I heard your show with Larry Dossie, and he was talking about numbers. Do you remember that? I do, and of he course. was and he was talking about intuitives and people coming back from experiences and what they get wrong is numbers. Well, Luke Kaufman and Bob Gray can tell you that's something I get right every time because I'll tell you what, Eldon, I've said the first time I'm wrong, I quit. I go home and we stop everything. 
because it's not about a need to be right. I'm I like to get being being right over with early in the day before my first cup of coffee because it's not about being right, but it's it's about being accurate with a matrix like this. Not, and you Not all of our audience, uh, Lynn Claire, uh would have been in the chat room and seen the film and I happen to have uh you know, mm. I've captured uh, one of your audio tracks off of uh, YouTube. Let's share a little bit of the sound of the Marion Matrix before we go. Well, to you, break. it's inaudible. That's well, what's important you, to know. You have it up uh, on YouTube as the Marion Music. Oh, oh, yes. Yes, okay, I can explain that. So let's that. share yeah. just a little bit of that. And then when sure. we come back from break, uh, let's talk about cymatics. That's one of my hobbies as well. And, really? And, uh, and some of these, yes, yes, it's, I've done that for many years. At any rate, everybody, here's a little bit of the Marian music that uh, uh, you'll find on YouTube uh, and or at Marian.org. say a picture's worth a thousand words. Well, sometimes a sound is worth a thousand words. I had several people uh, work with this sound before uh, the show, and they all came back with the same uh, kinds of remarks. Uh, incredibly relaxing and so forth. We hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes to take your comments and questions. Remember, uh, in this last 30 minutes... The show becomes yours. If you want to participate, just join us. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back after paying some bills. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. The changes I've seen in my life are truly a blessing. InnerTalk has given me the tools to repair deep-seated beliefs that constantly worked against me. I find myself happier and more successful since I've used the InnerTalk programs. I encourage you to discover the power of your beliefs by visiting www.innertalk.com and selecting your title for change. Whether you catch our show on CTR or 12radio.com, 
or bto.net and or bbs.com. We want you to know that we appreciate you. Thank you for listening. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Lynn Claire Dennis and Professor Lewis Kaufman about the Marion Matrix, uh, a pattern, one pattern. We will take your phone calls in this half hour, so if you have questions of our guest, either give us a call or submit your questions in our chat room. Now, we just played Ray of Light by Madonna. That that music gets me moving. I can't relax to that. What's the story with this one, Lynn Claire? Well, again, I mean, the whole thing is all about feeling and, and the feeling that you've just gotten home and 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 the one line that trying to remember where it all began and remember, remember, remember was the word that just went on and on and on. One of your one of your guys just asked, Mark G asked, he said, I'm 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 unclear how Marion affects our interpersonal relationships. Well it's all about remembering, being able to reconnect and find out where the disconnect is happening. And that's what Marion is showing us. So when I remember when this song first came out, I, I listened to it over and over because it just felt like, like, you know, Madonna had captured what, what my whole life was just coming up to. And it came out about the time that the pattern was, was released. And I felt like I had a little bit of heaven, and I, because I was, I, my feeling was, is that I was this hologram, this, you know, I like to say a hangnail on a hangnail on a hangnail on the little finger of of consciousness, and that was my perspective, and I had to remember what it felt like to be home. I, so you know, I that's tell why you that this, song. For what it's worth, in your for what it's worth department. 
you come back from an NDE and you have something very solid, very tangible. It isn't another story, you know. And and I I'm, I don't mean to sound jaded, but a lot of those stories are just false to fact. And investigations turn out, you know, that the people are. Well, I don't want to get yeah. down that, but but I'm I'm very impressed by the. You know the quality of information you bring back. That said, there are some things that uh, that I find a little difficult, and and so let me. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring a, take a couple of them to you if it's all right. Sure. In your book, in your first book, the pattern you describe our nation as undergoing a spiritual crisis that paralleled our technological advancement. In other words, you were basically saying. The faster technology moves, the deeper our spiritual crisis seems to go. But in your section on the reunion of science, heart and mind, you suggest that the pattern will change all this. How is that going to happen? You know, tell me how the pattern changes that. Well, I think it's, you know, some of it, we were having this discussion earlier today. We have, Like I said, we have a friend who's here visiting uh-huh. and we haven't seen for years, and we're talking exactly about this. And, yes, a story is just a story, but how do we find the common point in our story? And I think humanity is. We know we're at a tipping point. We've, we've reached that tipping point in so many, in so many places. So when I look at, at, our, at the reality of any system, we talk about Gertrude Stein, who said, a rose is a rose is a rose. And in the Marian Matrix, we're looking at the relationships of any system. And so a system is a system is a system. And as I look at a system and I look at how form informs these different functions, what we take in, literally what we receive, it first of all impacts our physical health. It impacts our physical body, and that's why if your health isn't your primary value, if it's not what you live for, then you're willing to die for anything. So what we're looking at here in my way of thinking, now this is my perspective, and we're real clear that what we're presenting is a model of unity that occurs only through diversity, and it's all about paradox and perspective. So we're looking at what we take in, how it affects our physical body, and then if we take it in further, if we, you know, if you say yes to something that's not good for you, if you say yes to something that you really don't want to do, it's going to have physical, emotional, mental, interspatial, temporal, recon, recon, you know, connection Absolutely consequences. Right. Mm-hmm. And the next thing, you know, what happens if you don't, if you don't take time? How often do you say yes to something and then you wind up breaking a promise? or requiring someone to compromise because you messed up the time. When our output into our world, because we're talking about input and then the throughput, we're talking about a decision-making process, the bookends on one end is physical. On the other end, it is spiritual. And by spiritual, I mean coherence. We're looking at is what I'm bringing in going to match what I'm taking out? And that is literally a geometrical match to this system. It's saying, I've brought in this, I've, I've said I'm going to do this, now can I still say yes and be coherent? Is my walk and talk going to be the same? And so are my values, are my personal morals going to match a noble global ethos where it's something, it, yes, it works for me, but it's going to generate 
something that is good for others that extends and takes on a life of its own. Okay, when people, now, when I go ahead, I'm sorry. I, I don't want to cut you off. I don't mean to interrupt you, but that's that's all know, right. We, we have we're we, we have temporal temporal qualifications here. Yeah, okay, you know. As human beings, we generally understand many things that are good for us and things that are bad for us, and we make those choices and decisions every day. Okay, so here you do have we matrix. make them? Do we make them, or we or do we take them by default? Uh, largely, I'm not going to argue. We, we take them mm-hmm. by default. We are brainwashed. Yeah. We 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 Correct. come to believe what we believe is a matter of the same process that we come to speak the language that we call our native tongue. We're enculturated that way, and and that process continues in our adulthood. But you make my very point. When you look into the real world and you see the the diversity, and I will use that word. Uh, particularly when it comes to matters of spirituality today. Um, you know, we have a new caliphate state in, in, in the Middle East. When we see these issues, how is it that, I mean, what is the practical way we can take the Marian matrix and solve those problems? Okay, well, I've got, I've got a great answer for you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Please. 20, 20, it's, Ben, 18 years ago, I was asked to be present in a dialogue with between uh, 50 Palestinian and Israeli teenage girls. Yes, yes. And I was put into that situation where I didn't get to do anything except be just kind of this kind of cosmic mother to this, this group for like three days before I finally got to speak. And what I got to do at the end, when they finally, and they all came to me, and they would all talk to me about what was going on for them. And the Israeli girls gave me a Hebrew name. They named me Ori. And the Palestinian girls named me Yasmin Nada. And so I had really deep and meaningful relationships with all these girls. One of the girls was Christian. Well, the last day when I finally got to speak, I got to bring out perspectives of the pattern, and I handed the Jewish girls a picture that you see on the cover of the Marian Matrix, where it looks like a six-pointed star. Mm -hmm. If you rotate it 90 degrees, only 90 degrees, I'm sitting here with a model myself, if you rotate it 90 degrees, you see all the sacred symbols of Islam, the crescent, you see all these different forms. If you go 90 degrees in the other direction and look from north and south, you see the yin-yang, which was a necklace the Christian girl was actually wearing. So I handed these pictures to these young women and said, so tell me, tell me what they have in common. And they all said, well, well, what they have in common is the rainbow. But then someone piped up and said, but mine's more beautiful than yours. And I said, well, what if they're the same? And they said, no way. They're all different. This is my symbol. This is my symbol. And then I brought out a three-dimensional model. And even a three-dimensional model is static. Now, this, this is not static. People were wondering how that music just goes on. Well, it's a continuum. It just goes on. It dances. There's no end to this dance. We are just celebrating this piece of time, this temporal reality, and this spiritual expression that we get to have in this amazing physical body in this lifetime. And all of a sudden, these young women, their jaws just dropped, and they saw that it was that all of their perspectives could be embodied in a single, 
in a single dynamic. So as we're looking at what's going on in the world, what's happening in the Ukraine with the loss of of the Malaysian Air Flight 17, when we're looking at what's going on in the Gaza Strip, when we're looking at what's happening in Palestine, when we're looking at what's happening all over Africa, when we look at the devastation that's happening, deforestation in South America, when we... My... Oh, my goodness. It's just... It's just... It just makes you want to be crazy because it's all going on in the name of God and and the name of God and politics and you you put religion, politics and you know, all of this together and you've got a recipe for disaster. So it's so the time to come is, the question is how how are you going to get the politicians to play that play with that? Yes, exactly. But this Palestinian is and Israeli girls played with it. Yes, exactly. Well, the challenge is, is first of all, you know, we were, again, going back to conversation that we were having at dinner this evening, how long will we sit back and do nothing and think, oh, somebody else is going to do it? When does the grassroots movement, we need to start a grassroots fire. Because, you know, when I flew over Africa a number of years ago, it was a midnight flight, and Looking out my window, I saw the most amazing thing on the ground. I saw Africa burning. And when I landed, the first thing I wanted to know was, what were the fires that I saw on the ground? And they said, oh, fires burn all across Africa. You can't put them out. They can't be extinguished. And I said, why not? And they said, because they burn underground and you never know where it's going to erupt. You never know when that light is going to break free. And I went, that's what we need to start we need to start a grassroots fire. So it's about the people finding their own voices and realizing the voice is not about adversity. It's it's like when do we say enough is enough? And but if we can bring if we could have a call for a true dialogue, a deep dialogue where perspectives are honored, where diversity is honored, you you bring them around the table and Everyone knows that everyone counts, everyone matters. It's like what we're doing in the classroom. One of our colleagues, Nick Wolf, he's wonderful. He was in NASA for years as an astrobiologist looking at the origins of life, and he says, I know what I'm learning with this. I'm learning that what I didn't learn when I was in kindergarten, and that's to learn how to share. Because, you know, it's like we can, we're advocating for, it's like if we could treat, teach, teach politicians to learn, unlearn, and relearn. When I met Nick Wolf, it was at a meeting at NASA Mountain View, and, and I sat down. You know who sat on the other side of me? Alvin Toffler. Alvin Toffler, who said, you know, the illiterate of the 21st century are not those who, who won't be able to read and write. It's those who can't learn, unlearn, and relearn. And in, Einstein said, the insanity of doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Well, well, that's got to, that has to end. So here we have a repeating pattern that if we can come together with open minds, because these politicians, they're not going to be of like mind ever. So if you can come together and find a place to be open-minded, open-hearted, then we can be the catalyst for change. Many years ago, it was actually not many, it seems like many, it was 2007, an economist uh, in Switzerland sat down with the Marian Matrix 
and said, Lynn Claire, I want you to talk to me about economics as it has to do with this, with this matrix, with the process that we're going through, the relationship. And I said, Paul, I don't understand economics well enough to, to do that. I said, but if you ask me the questions, I can put them into the context where I think they go, and then you can evaluate it. At the end of two days, he said, this is flawless, but the world is going to have to fall apart before politicians and economists will ever take a look at a model like this because it says that it says what you have to invest in stabilizing the infrastructure of any system whether it's yourself your own body your own life it's like if if your if your internal system if you're not healthy how on earth can you be of assistance to anyone else so are you suggesting a, a kind of partial you know, what, an eschatological event where, um, you know, the world does fall apart uh, before we're able to uh, rebuild a cohesive? Or are you, are, you, are you petitioning to us all to become spiritual activists? Or are you going to take your poli-sci background and, and run to NATO, uh, to the United Nations, or what? You know what? I'm, I'm just calling for us to be... I'm calling for an awakening of conscience in human beings. Because when we can live with our own conscience, and when we can, when our morality can interact with the field of consciousness, then I think we have a power to, to realize that being a change agent, you know, Hitler was a change agent. Idi Amin was a change agent. If if we don't like the state of the world, the only thing that we can change is, is what's enough. I do believe that what we can see is what we need to heal in ourselves, and that the highest purpose of a relationship is to, to heal our deepest wounds, so that in our self-healing, we literally wake up from the dream, and we start, we get out of bed, we put on our shoes and socks, and we start making a positive difference in the world. I mean, we have One to get started. Right. I, it, I, I it, tell, that's all. That's all we can do, and I. I, I do think we can start a, a global grassroots movement for change, and it means coming together and realizing what happens. I think, Eldon, with the matrix, what we're able to see is, you know, what when you know what you want, most people don't even know what they want. But when you know what you want, you can have it. But you have to wake up and realize you can have it all, but you cannot do it all. And so when people with diverse competences, a shared vision, shared values, agree to come together and cooperate rather than compete, I think miracles can happen. And miracle to me is an ordinary, but it just looks extraordinary because it's so antithetical to what we call normal. But right there you have another sticking point, Lynn Claire. You have, well, implied in the sentence I read from your book, you have the notion of redistribution of wealth. Uh, I think the, the actual statement that you say is that, uh, well, here, I'll pull it back up. Myriad principles show that energy, materials, and resources of all kinds must be distributed equally. If any part of a system suffers, the entire system is at risk. So it's one thing to look at right. a piece of geometry, a knot, as the professor says, and quite another to think that, well, what we're going to do now is we're going to redistribute wealth in order to 
um, stabilize a system that is very unstable, and it is the inequality of wealth that is largely behind the instability. Okay, let me let me just talk you through a couple of things. When Please. we're talking in in the book, when we talk about if. Do you agree? Let me ask a question. Do you agree <laughs> that 1%, that, that 85 people, 85 people, individuals, not countries, not communities, but 85, pe- 85 people have more than 3.78 billion, half the people on the planet, is something that's out of whack? If indeed that were the number, and I don't that know is that the it number. is, but that yes, proportion it is. is completely inappropriate. I, I have no it, that is that. that okay. is a fact, that okay. 85 people. Do, now, here's another thing. But now, you know, but here's the 1%, where you go, Lynn, Claire. You know, I know. Where you go now. Yeah, you, oh, I definitely. We, we distribute from that 85 people, but in now, redistributing well, from them, we're also going to be <laughs> redistributing from you and I because of the level of poverty that exists. In many well, levels. think about but this. But I'll shut up. You, you know, go ahead. We've got, yeah, no, we've got let about me just two say, minutes. You can give me lots of rope, and I'll tie a knot. I'll, I might hang myself with it, but I'll have fun doing it. <laughs> Do you know what you have? How much money you have to make a year per person to be a member of the One Percent Club? Tell me. Twenty thousand dollars. No. If you are, ma- are you yeah, talking check worldwide? Your facts. Check your facts worldwide. If you make $20,000 a year, you are a member of the 1% Club. The 1% of the wealthiest. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so every American, basically, including those getting food stamps, are among the wealthiest. That's right. That's right. So I think something's out of whack. And I think, I don't think, see, I think we make the mistake of thinking, we, we put an equal between the word spiritual and the word religious. I am a secular agnostic, and that's going to shock a lot of people. Richard, you mentioned, I heard you talking about Richard Dawkins at the beginning of your show, and he calls himself an atheist. Well, for a while I thought I was an atheist, and then I realized I'd have to possess 100% of all the knowledge in the universe to call myself an atheist. And that logic kind of fell apart really fast, so I said, no, I guess I'm agnostic, because that means... There could be this something or someone that someone wants to call God and call him a name and think they can have a personal relationship with that when they don't know themselves. Yeah, your so thought line really follows closer Buddhism without some of the... But go ahead, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so anyway, you don't see a divine Claire, being. Claire, there's a yes, term no. that Martin Gardner used for his form of belief, which he said he's a Mysterian. Right. I think you're a Mysterian. <laughs> I, <don't buy> <laughs> I love it. Absolutely. Yes, I am definitely a Mysterian and a reluctant mystic. <laughs> All right, I'm going to have to stop because we only have 30 seconds left, and as much as I want to hear where you were going, I want you to tell everybody how they can find out more about you, where your books are, etc. So take it. Oh, great. It. We, we really invite them to join us at Marion.org, and also we, um, if you just do a Google for the Marion Legacy CIC or just M-E-R-E-O-N. You'll find a blog on WordPress, um, thebelongingprojects.org. You can find that through marion.org. That's our education project. Is it really two hours gone, Eldon? 
Yeah, it's gone, and I'm sorry. Wow. I have loved having you both here. We're going to have to do this one again because this one took hey, six hours. Fun. All right, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do check out Marion.org. All right, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.